Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Durhaj. Hi, everyone. It's uh, Roxanne Durhodge. Thanks for tuning in again. Today, I have a colleague, Sarah McDonnell. Sarah, how are you today? I am, I am awesome to be on the phone with you, but I will admit I have a cold. So I sound very on target with my brand, Frog, Forever Recognize Others' Greatness. <laughs> I sound like a stuffed up frog right now. So other than a little cold, I am awesome. Well, you look amazing. Thank you. So uh, Sarah and I have been uh, colleagues for a couple of years now. She's the president of uh, the um, Toronto chapter of the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers, which I'm a member. And Sarah's been a member now for, goodness, it's been about four five, years. Four years. And yeah. for me, for me, it's just um, heading into my second year. And we've shared uh, some time uh, with various um uh, mastermind groups and things like that. And I have the privilege of seeing her once a month um, at, at our events. So Sarah's done something. She's done a lot of fantastic things since I've met her. But she's recently done, um, she's just, uh, it's her fourth book and she's just published, um, which is, uh, I've been seeing all over social and I thought, what an opportunity to talk about failure. So the name of the book is called The Flip Side of Failing, How to Recognize and leverage greatness in work and life. And I, I know all of us, I don't know, I know me for sure, I'm always trying to figure out kind of the combination and how to, you know, when I failed at something at home, kind of how to make it better the next time or at work. I mean, for most of us, I know if we've kind of been around for a little bit, we failed often. And I know in my career of 30 years of being in the psycho psychology field and now in the speaking world, I failed a lot. So Sarah, thank you so much for coming on and mm, my pleasure. Uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you. It's funny how um, you write the book that you need to read yourself. I don't know, Roxanne, if you've found that because you're a published author. Um, this book never in was going to be about failure. That's, this is a hilarious thing. I'm, I'm writing a book on failure and I'm actually a recognition expert. So it seems completely counterintuitive. But actually when I, the book I was trying to write was about greatness. So I went out and I interviewed all these great Canadians, many of which you know and adore you, Roxy. Um, you know, people like Orlando Bowen, who's an ex-CFL player and a, just a, an incredible speaker. Vince Presenti, a world record holder. Heather Moyce, bobsledder, Olympic bobsledder, gold medalist, um, Al Mallory, Everest climber. I've got 3M scholars, people also who are like, quote, you and me, you know, who have, who have experienced traumas, who have come back from that, incredible challenges. And I wanted to basically write a book where each chapter was talking about greatness. What another theme on greatness. And it was the most boring book. Roxy, you would not have <laughs> wanted to read that book. It was so, I tried to write it twice and failed. So then of course you think, okay, well, Obviously, I either have to get rid of this and then disappoint all these people that I've interviewed and all the wonderful interns that I work with who help me in or interviewing these folks and transcriptions and all of that. And I'm not a, I never give up. As you know, I'm very persistent. So I thought there must be a different book in here. And 
that was when the most obvious thing just sat there right there at the front of the stack and the number one theme, in fact, the only one that every single one of those individuals, these great Canadians that I put on a pedestal, only thing that they said was they all strove to fail. And failure was, in fact, the reason why they became great, mm-hmm. why they were 3M scholars in, in, in the most unlikely of times and, and perhaps unpopular research fields. And, and the only way that you can ever get an Olympic medal is if you're constantly pushing past your physical and mental limitations. And it just made so much sense. And I thought, okay. This actually is a deeper message about recognition, because if we can recognize ourselves and others despite failure, now that is truly authentic recognition. That now is unconditional recognition, and that, and this is where I love the work that you do, this is where we truly have meaningful human connection. So I'm going to assume when you're kind of trying twice, I listen to you because I've written a book and I know what it takes to, yes. to write a book, right? You kind of go to two iterations and then you're thinking, oh, this, is, this isn't right. It's not working. Yes. There had to be a part of you that's saying, you know, quote unquote, I failed here. Yes. And then you're looking at it and you're thinking, here's the pebble in the rough here. Like as you're reading all these phenomenal stories of some of these people that I've, I've had the privilege now of spending great time with who are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Was it like you kind of sitting there and looking, wow, here it is. Yes. That's exactly what it is. It's, it is, it's sometimes the most obvious things are the things that you can't see or that you avoid. And I did not like the idea of writing a book about failure. I did not like the idea as a professional speaker as well. I did not like the idea of standing in front of audiences talking about failure. <laughs> I might actually have to admit my own failures <laughs> if, I, if I am to be so bold as to talk about other people's failures. I can't just hide behind sharing great Canadian stories. And then when you know, I faced the reality that I have to give up, in actual fact, that felt like a bigger failure because I'd be not only letting those individuals down that have worked hard on the book as well as that I took their precious time. I mean, people like Peter Mansbridge that interviews world leaders who, who I mean, he's recently retired from the CBC Canadian Broadcast Company. However, he, he normally interviews the Obamas and the Clintons and the you know, Trudeaus of the world. He gave me an hour of his time. I cannot let him down and all the other people, not to mention the fact that if we don't talk about failure, so the very reason why I resisted it, and I mean, I'm sure you've studied Carl Jung just extensively. He said, what you resist persists. It persisted for a reason. And you know, the best keynote now, the one that people love and they get so much value out of that people come up to me afterwards with tears streaming down their face saying, okay, this is, this showed up on my world for a reason is this keynote. And yes, I talk about my biggest failure, um, a failure as a mom and how we can, and that the, by the tail end of that speech, I talk about how we came back from that and it ended up being the best thing that happened to us in our individual lives, but also as a family and how it would lead to the best career I could ever have imagined and never would have done that had it not been from this, for this catastrophic failure I experienced in my life. 
And so I just, uh, that is what gave me the fortitude to keep writing and to write the book that I resisted and didn't want to write. But that was, as you say, just sitting right there as plain as the nose on my face. So would you mind sharing a little bit of that story? I've been, Mm -hmm. I've heard it a couple, I've heard snippets of it. I've not heard um, all of it from our time together. I think it's a fascinating story. If you would be. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, About um, five years ago, I was working in a corporate job maybe even six years ago now, uh, I was a senior leader in a hospital. I'd worked very hard to climb the corporate ladder, had a master's degree, had done many certifications, even while we were raising small children, kept going back to school and getting additional qualifications. And now I had reached the second highest position in the organization, along with, of course, a peer group. And, and I was 38. I mean, this is, isn't this what we're all supposed to do? Is, is make the most of our education and get good paychecks and have fancy titles on LinkedIn. And, and, at, and on the surface, everything looks great because um, we, ha- you know, we have a couple of cars, we have a couple of homes, and, and we have two beautiful children. And I came home from work one day, having worked late yet again, because I often miss dinner at this point in my life. And I, and I go to work so early that I even don't get a chance to have breakfast with my family either. And my husband says to me, as I walk in the door, could you go up and talk to Justin, who is our 10-year-old son? And so I don't even get a chance to say hello to my eight-year-old daughter or to give him a kiss. I go right upstairs because I'm mummy therapist. Like you, Roxanne, my, my background is therapy. That's my master's. And I figure, oh, you know, hey, I mediate coach all day long. No problem. I'll get this fixed up in 10 minutes and be back downstairs to wolf down some dinner and get routine restored, get the bath time done, and then probably hop back on my emails to, you know, catch up on the things that I had left as I was skiving, as I was driving home. And as I walked in the door, I just could feel something was wrong. I didn't know what it was. I could just feel it. You know, that feeling with a loved one, I'm sure you and all the listeners have got, have had that feeling. And, um, it's dark. My son, who's ADHD, normally is a whirling dervish at this time of the night. He's sitting in, in the corner staring at the wall. And um, as I walk down, I sit down beside him. And the light is streaming in from the, the uh, spotlight, the, the street lamp outside. Um, as I say to him, you know, bad day at school today, bud. And he says, yeah, it's, it was a bad bullying day today, mom. And, and they, as he's saying it, I actually look down at his arm and I noticed there are cut marks up and down his arm, intentional cuts. And, and it all begins to make sense why my child who is on antidepressants, anti-anxiety, anti-tick medication, even though he doesn't have Tourette's, he is clearly being bullied and I had no idea. And in that moment, this feeling of complete failure as a mother washes over me. And all the work that we're seeing coming out of Brene Brown's lab shows us about how there are two things that cause shame in women more than anything else. Number one, body image. And number two, motherhood. Whether you're a mom or not, apparently nobody's averse to it, which is just so wonderful. Shame is an equal opportunity employer. And, um, and I just felt awful. I just thought, like, how could I miss this? How could I be so busy climbing that ladder that I didn't even notice what was going on with the most important people in my life? And it also then spirals the shame cycle of, well, what have I missed in my daughter? And what have I missed in my husband and my parents? And, you know, so um, my son asked me alone. I go downstairs. I tell my husband. Now he has his own shame cycle. He's a teacher. How did I miss this? I'm his dad. I've been with him for hours. How come he didn't say anything? And 
for men, their biggest triggers for shame is masculinity and being a provider. And he feels like I haven't provided, I haven't protected my child. How could I have missed this? And we hit a really dark place. And this is our, this was the, I've had a lot of failures in my life, but this is definitely the biggest one because in that moment, Roxanne, I thought, I don't know if my kid's going to live through this. Mm-hmm. He's talking about wishing he wasn't alive. Mm-hmm. And, and when, I, when I had hugged him upstairs and I said, everything's going to be okay. We're going to fix this. I promise you. And you're a good kid. And don't let those kids tell you that you're not worth it and that you're not a good person. I could tell when he looked at me, he did not believe this time that I could fix it. And he didn't believe that he was worth it. And uh, that in that moment, we didn't know how to fix it. And we started to do things like we recognized each other a lot more, you know, all the things that I, I teach people in a corporate environment around recognition, we actually practiced in our household and that helped, but the environment, the context was actually setting him up for failure as well. The school, the before and after school daycare. And I'm not down on schools because my husband's a teacher. I love schools. It's just that particular school did not, was not willing to face it and to do what they needed to do. Um, so he realized that we, as much as we could make things better in our household, he was being bullied in every area except at our house and a few houses, um, of, of close friends, but he didn't really even truly have close friends. So we just, we needed to start again. So we quit our life. Basically we sold everything, but our cars needed those. And we kept the kids cause we were pretty attached <laughs> and, uh, and we moved and we got out of debt and we, we moved back to Niagara on the lake or Niagara, Niagara Lake district, Niagara Lake area, because that's where my family is. And that's where I'm originally from. Of course, wonderful people like you live here. So it's a great place to be. And, um, we started again and I, uh, started a business not having the foggiest clue what to do at all because I've never, you know, you don't learn business when you're in psychology school and just told everybody that I knew that I liked, Hey, guess what? I work for myself. Now you want any work done that, that was the extent of my business model. (laughs) That was it. That was it. I just told people I'm open for business. And in that first year I just broke even, but I did everything that I possibly could. Most importantly though, it didn't matter that I just broke even because we set ourselves up that that was okay. You know, we could, we could live off of just my husband's income because we didn't have a mortgage and car payments and things like that. And, uh, but my son got well, he got well so quickly and within six months, he has friends for the first time. He's in a safe school that really loves him and sees his strengths. And, you know, it's not perfect. It's not easy for him. He's a lot of challenges, but you know what? They could see his greatness and they didn't just see his challenges. Um, My kids got into competitive sports that we never had the time or energy to get them to and from. And they, they started to just thrive in those environments. He got off antidepressants, anti-anxieties, no more ticks. And, and he's just now years later, he's a competitive rower and he is, if he wants to, he probably could one day make a national team if that becomes something he wants. He's got wonderful relationships with not just friends, but also the, you know, this choice in, 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 in romantic relationships are very respectful and compassionate. I mean, we spend so much time with his girlfriend and she's just total delight. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's been the best thing for me as well, because I didn't realize that I actually didn't enjoy most of what I was doing in my job. 
and I love almost everything I do in my business. The almost everything part is, you know, receipts and <laughs> tracking mileage and taxes all that, and all that know, fun stuff, all that fun business, running your business stuff. But um, no, I mean, every, truly every day I, I feel so blessed. And, you know, my son, in fact, all of us have said at various points, and we will say this often, wow, you know, if it hadn't have been for that mm -hmm. crisis, family crisis we have had, um, we wouldn't be here and how lucky we are. I mean, we live in the, on the water, a beautiful place in Niagara and, and we love our home and we just, we love the freedom that we have now, financial freedom and just, you know, life freedom. Um, we're just better people too, because of this as well. And I don't mean to paint life as a Pollyanna. We're raising teenagers. It's not like we never have disputes or <laughs> like life isn't easy. I'm not trying to paint a paint a picture like that. It's just, I never, ever would have thought that our biggest failure would lead to actually our biggest success. Wow. So when you kind of think of like your story and, and you've all these phenomenal, you know, people, you know, that have done phenomenal things in, in our history in Canada. What are some of the things that you picked up from them that thematically that you could share about, about failing and that, that I think I, I'm interested in, I'm sure the people listening are also interested. Yeah. For sure. You know, one of the biggest themes that I realized when I was actually creating the keynote version, so this was after the book was, was produced, is that how they handle failure is actually how they handle everything in work and life. Mm -hmm. So for example, Peter Mansbridge doesn't have a university education and you would think, my gosh, if you, yeah, you'd never know, right? Um, no, he decided when he was in, in high school that he wanted to travel. So he told his parents who were, who always talk current events, always told their children, you're going to go to university, you're going to become big things and, you know, become doctors, lawyers, judges, whatever, you know, whatever you want to do, as long as it's an esteemed pr profession. And he, he told them, no, I'm, I'm, I want to travel. And, and then he ended up joining the Navy. And when he came back to Canada, he was working in an airport, doing basically anything that needed doing. And he said, um, okay, you know, when somebody was, um, had called in sick, okay, I'll do the announcements, no problem. And he started doing the announcements. And just a perfect stranger waiting for a flight came up to him and said, you know, I'm listening to you and you have a great voice. You should be on radio. And just in that moment, he went, oh, yes, I should be in broadcasting. So that set his path. He just, next day in his coveralls with his name on the lapel, he went up to the front desk of the local CBC radio station and said, hi, I'm Peter Mansbridge, and I'm going to be a broadcaster. Can you imagine the look on the receptionist's face? <laughs> and they talked to him, and they thought, sure, we'll give this guy a chance. And, and as he climbed his career in journalism, he would tell, he tells the first one to say, the door slammed in my face way more times than it opened. You don't have the education. You don't have the pedigree. You don't have the connections. You've gone as far as you can. Every time you wanted to go to an, a bigger city to, to, or made the leap from radio to TV and then from being an, an international correspondent to having a regular spot, that was multiple failures, multiple failed attempts, multiple rejections before those things ever happened. He just believed that I have to believe in my dream and myself more than other people because I'm the one who knows myself. I know what is possible for me. So how you handle failures, how you handle everything, 
that he doesn't take no for an answer. So you can probably imagine why he's had some pretty darn tough, but fabulous interviews Mm -hmm. with 13,000 people and why he's covered every Royal wedding or funeral, every major, um, you know, natural disaster elections for decades and has been a trusted journalist. So that's, I mean, he's, he's one of many people that really lives that, how you handle failures, how you handle everything. Your rejection is not the story. It's the, it's the pushing past it and through it. That is the true story of your success. Um, another theme that came up, which ended up being a part of a model that I created was your resiliency comes from your failures. Mm-hmm. So your it's actually, it's not that you have to become resilient to failure it's that actually your failures can build your resiliency. Mm-hmm. So the model that I um, created in the book is how it's accept is the acronym. So how we can accept failure because as, and, and you alluded to this earlier, that we all fail. We all have challenges. We all have failures. It's not if you have a failure, an obstacle, roadblock, a challenge, it's how you handle it when it happens. Um, and I'll give you for the show notes, the link to, for if folks want to download this, this chart, but, um, in essence being failure resilient. And when you accept failure, a is acquire where people would ask themselves things like what, what can I learn? So what can I acquire from this? The first C is choice. What options are available? People who are not resistant to failure consider it Uh, there must be another option. There must be another possibility as opposed to it limiting their choices. They don't externalize their power. They internalize their options. The next C is connection. So how can this bond or unite? And that's the fascinating thing is these people that I initially put on a pedestal. As soon as I looked at it through the lens of failure, I realized that they're just like you and I. Mm -hmm. And I, and I invite the reader and, or the listener, in fact, to think about how the people that they most respect and role model and or their the role models in their life it's actually probably their failures that have made them more accessible to them and that they respect them even more because of or despite their failures right. or the obstacles not not because you know not respect them less because there's been a failure um the e is expect how could this be expected as opposed to seeing it as this this fearful thing it is well failures happen so how do i how do I bounce back from it? How do I process this? P is progress. What's the best way forward? So it's not necessarily always the outcome, getting right to the outcome, because that's often how we in this society, this perfectionistic society that we live in, Mm -hmm. it has to be, I have to be at the top. I have to have the top job. I have to get there faster than everybody. You know, 40 under 40 is all great. I'm 41. So great. Now I'm washed up. No, it's just, you make still make progress in your business. That's what's most important. And then T, transformation, is what is important on the long term. So folks don't necessarily get caught up in, in how this is it for me. It's that this must be here for a reason. We have this expression in the speaking profession, your mess is your message. So how is, in fact, this failure, this obstacle, this roadblock, this setback, how, could it actually have shown up for a reason? And could things be better as a result? So... Those are a few of the themes. I could go on, Rosie or Roxy, but I just don't, uh, you know, I don't want to take, I take up all the airtime. What, what other questions do you have? Well, I'm, I'm just thinking, right? So from, 
a leadership perspective or when you're running teams, right? Or managers or, you know, there's always the that diversity of, of how people deal with failure. Yes. Right. Yeah. So if you're thinking a work environment, you know, from that perspective, what kind of, you know, words of wisdom would you give to people that manage others? Right. Because I think about, you know, some of the teams that I've managed over my career. And I, I, I literally think I had one team that I managed and there was 10 personalities without a doubt. Right. <laughs> There was, you know, there was nothing that I could do with one that I, you know, I didn't do for with another and I had to learn each person and, and then kind of sing their song based on what they were needing at that time and all those things. So what, what kind of things, I mean, you've been obviously back in this whole concept of failure for, you know, however long you've been um, working on this book, what would you say to people that are having to manage people that deal with failure in different ways? Well, first of all, I just want to say how lucky people are to have worked for you, that you were willing to honor them for who they are. Um, it's really easy as leaders to fall into the traps of the millennials and the boomers and, you know, all these sort of, um, or veteran workers, experienced workers versus newer. It's really easy to categorize and pigeonhole people. And you didn't do that. So I just really want to honor and acknowledge that because that's part of how how you handle failure is how you handle everything, right? So it's the same with leadership. How you handle failure in leadership is how you handle everything. And, and I think new leaders learn pretty quickly that if you try to manage everybody the same way, particularly since that way is probably the way you want to be managed, which it may not be the way everybody wants to be managed. So, I mean, that's, that's part of it is actually you just role model that by how you described how the way you've, you've led. Um, so that's one thing is to just recognize everybody's different and that will help you with how to handle failure with people as well as everything else in leadership. Um, you know, I, I think the other part is that if we expect as leaders that people are not going to get it all right, Sometimes a deadline will be missed. Sometimes uh, we'll have higher sick time than we expect. And I'm not saying accept it as in, you know, don't hold people accountable or yourself accountable or address it. It's just if we dramatize or we traumatize these things that naturally happen in workplaces, then it's a problem as opposed to we look for solutions. So if we expect that there are going to be blips as a leader, if we expect that we'll have to address issues, then maybe we're not going to be so resistant and that we can be resilient. You know, that, that framework, the accept model applies to leaders as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think I would do what you had role modeled as well is admit this was part of what you, you did earlier in our podcast. I don't even know if you noticed it. You're so transparent and such a wonderful quality. I just really want to make it very transparent to people. You admitted that you have made many failures in your business and, and in your career, we need to be honest as leaders with people. Mm -hmm. You know what? It took me two years to get the job. So don't think that just because you're, it's, it's week three that you should have had it nailed by now. I was in the same situation as you. I mean, imagine the weight off of a new person's shoulders if you said that <laughs> versus, oh, I'm just going to reiterate the expectation. Start with humanizing it. Put, let's put hum, the human factor back in the, in the workplace and say, you know what, it's normal to not get it right first time. It's normal that it's going to be overwhelming. Um, 
And so, uh, you know, share, share your struggles or mm. if you're going through something rough at home, you don't have to hide it from your colleagues. You know, I, it's amazing how, when I gave my notice, I gave five months notice when this, our whole situation happened to our family and people said to me, wow, Sarah, I never would have imagined that you were going through this. Cause it was about six months of us cleaning up our life and getting things in order before I could finally give my notice. And, uh, and I realized in hindsight, Imagine if I had just been honest with my colleagues and said, we are having the biggest crisis of our family's life right now. And um, I'm not going to be performing at my best, or I'm not going to get all my deadlines in time, or I need a bit of help. Imagine how much better that would have been because I wore the burden of being a bad mom, but also having to be an exceptional performer at work at the same time. Mm-hmm. So being a leader, a great leader who's, who leverages failure to in its full capacity is also acknowledging your own failures, struggles, challenges, obstacles, uh, where you're not naturally good at something where, you know, we're saying to somebody on the team, wow, you sure have an ability to, to create organized systems so fast. I, I, I would love to have been gifted with that. Or you have just such a natural way of being able to connect with your colleagues. I can't believe how in a month that you have been here, you've created such strong friendships and relationships already. That's, it took me a year to earn people's trust. That's amazing. You know that, and that relates to what, what I, you know, what I normally teach in my corporate environment, which is around recognition is that recognize people for their strengths and, and juxtapose it with how you may not be gifted in that, mm-hmm. that, that in and of itself is a gift to, to acknowledge how not only are they great at something that you're not necessarily that, that, perfect at it as well. So, you know, these are, I think so much of, and and the model in the book is um, we have to have a failure resilient mindset, which is the accept part of the formula. And then we have to have a failure resilient context. Mm -hmm. So leaders who are listening, ask yourself, do I surround myself with people who allow me to fail sometimes? Does my boss, do my peers, do, do the members of my team, realize that I don't have to get it right every time and that's still okay. And that we want to learn from it. We want to figure out how to, how to make it better. I'm not let off the hook and never held accountable. It's not that I don't know what is expected of me and those sorts of challenges, but it truly is. I don't have to be perfect. I'm not a machine. You know? And similarly, do I hold, do I hold my folks accountable? And yet I'm also I also am, have a very strong relationship with them in that they are, they could come to me and talk about struggles. They can ask for help. They can, you know, they want to participate in continuous improvement because they are not afraid to point out when systems aren't working. Every organization, yours, mine, um, GM, like uh, massive, massive companies, the government of Canada, every single company, uh, every team, there are some systems that aren't working. Do people bring those to your attention? Do you ask people? Do you celebrate the oops? You know, do you have a, something like a biggest oops award where you <laughs> celebrate the biggest problem that somebody's found? Like, yes, you know, we almost lost a client and we didn't this time, but okay, what almost made us lose that client? How can we fix that? Um, and, uh, and, and as opposed to what normally happens in workplaces is that people are afraid to admit it, mm-hmm. they shame, they blame, they hide it, um, or if people feel shame, blame, and, and that it's, um, it's a bad mark on them. 
So given that how failure resilient, resistant we are as a culture, we have to create safety, psychological safety. And we have 13 factors of psychological safety in the workplace now. And every one of them, I would argue, you need to have a failure resilient context in order to have true psychological safety. And then, and that's the tail end of this model is, when people can, people will have three options when a failure, an obstacle challenge hits. They can deflate, they can just mitigate the damage or they can elevate. As a leader, you're tr I believe truly one of your true tests, and this is, I know your brand is authentic leadership. To me, when it comes to failure, authentic leadership is that people can elevate when, from failure. They do not stay in that stuck place. They do not hide it. They do, we do not argue for status quo, and we certainly don't go backwards. We look at the best of what is, the best of what's been, and the best of what could be, and we move forward from there without, without judgment or harshness, and, and yet with balance with accountability. And so that you know, we can truly accelerate and, and shine in our teams and in our organizations. You know, that makes me think when I was an executive in health and wellness, and I would manage about 50 uh, companies, there was about, I would say, maybe 25% of my portfolio at that time. I had contacts that were, if I were to do a, a personality inventory on them, um, they were diametrically, whatever my, my um, major trait was, you know, and my one that I needed to work on, those were the ones that kept me up at night because they were very meticulous with details. So I'm a big picture thinker. I'm a visionary. I'm not so good with the microscopic. So I managed those, a lot of those companies for 10 years, Sarah. I would sweat bullets going into those meetings. I would, I would over-prepare <sighs> because those people thought so differently from me because, you know, everything would, you know, get it prepared for me. The statisticians would give me the information. I would get the marketing to give me the information. My, my assistant would, and, and I would, the night, you know, the night before those meetings, I would go over it and over it because what ha used to happen is I would go in and I wasn't meeting their need. So it forced me to learn their language and what was needed for them to get what they needed about their, their health and wellness strategy. And initially I would say, well, I don't, this doesn't feel right. You know, how am I going to do better? And now I look back at that particular uh, tenure in my life. And that was my biggest growth because I knew when I went into those board meetings, I would get sliced and diced quite literally at the beginning. But then, you know, what it forced me to do is to think is, okay, I know how I want the information, but what is it that they need from me? And it really helped me to grow through that failure. So, you know, it, it just makes so much sense when you talk about looking at it from the different perspectives versus everybody going along with what you think they think you want to hear as a leader. Right. Oh, and if there's one thing that I, uh, when I speak with CEOs and business owners, that is the thing that keeps them up at night. What are people not telling me? Mm -hmm. And so if you have a failure resilient context, people aren't afraid to tell you things. I mean, I, I, I was a bit of a, rarity probably in the last organization that I worked in where I would tell the CEO things that he didn't want to hear. And I'd say this may be a career limiting move. 
do you want to hear it? And that was kind of our, our um, way of me saying, you're probably not going to want to hear this. And, uh, and, and, you know, if you were a different type of person, you probably would fire me by telling you because you don't <laughs> you really don't want to hear it. Um, but, he, you know, I, can, I think he considered me a trust advisor and we're still colleagues to this day. I, we could call each other up and be honest and transparent about anything, even though we don't work together anymore. So, you know, uh, um, honesty, I believe, is, true, is the true element of what we're talking about here. And how honest are we right now in organizations? Are we truly, you know, the whole difficult conversations movement arose really out of people repressing, hiding, pushing down the stories they have about people, the, the things that have been unsaid, the hurts, the blame, the criticism, the, the toxicity as well. Um, there would not be a multi-million dollar industry on how to, how to have crucial conversations if people had failure resiliency in their workplaces. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one, when you were talking, um, Roxy, about your portfolio, you know, I, I definitely agree that the things that aren't easy for us and we, ha we face head on and we think, okay, this is a growth opportunity, 100% agree that those are things that are, can be career defining and character building moments in our career. And I think we need to balance that with honoring and respecting the people who work for us enough that when I realize I've got Roxy, who's big picture, detail, not detail-oriented, and I've got Jenna, who's very detail-oriented and specific and very black and white, instead of organizing my, my leadership team geographically, I think it might best serve them and my clients to organize them by fit. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't hire people because they're the physically closest person who lives to the building. We're supposedly hire people based on fit. So why wouldn't we organize our teams that way too? Mm -hmm. And I can tell you in my career, some of the best choices I ever made in my, in my leadership were about reorganizing the portfolios, people's responsibilities, um, the priorities of our work based on the people in the role that I have on my team right now. And obviously working with the clients about what their biggest needs were, as opposed to saying, no, we have to do this program. And, and, and the person in this role is always offered that program. You need to do it. So I think that it's a balance of, we want to push and encourage growth as much as possible with knowing that there is naturally going to be a, there's going to be a limitation. It's just like um, Heather Moist became an Olympic bobsledder not just because she was failure resilient and, and was willing to not always succeed. You know, her first Olympics, she didn't actually medal. And had she only believed that a medal uh, was success, she probably wouldn't have gone back. Um, and with the failure resiliency, she also was an extremely talented athlete. Mm -hmm. She was an, a, 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 an amazing track star. Um, with great coaching and an incredible gene pool, her all of her her brother and her sister and her parents, they are you can just tell by looking at them. These are very fit people. Um, <laughs> then she was on the national rugby team, you know. So wow. I think, and that was where she was recruited into the the sledding, the the you know our sledding team for Canada. She had natural talent that then she further honed and then had the mindset, failure resilient mindset. So. It is, for the leaders listening to this podcast, I really, really encourage you to honor and look at your people as individuals, just like you did, Roxy. 
and say, how am I going to get the very best from them? And then how am I going to support them when I, when they are positioned to do their very best and they still do not succeed because of what's going on in their personal life, because this has been a huge growth, because they're overwhelmed, because we have put so much, so much work on people's plates these days. How do we support them despite that? That's, I think, where we truly get the best from people. That's, it's that combination there. And I think that's a sweet spot, right? I think, but to your point, the vulnerability as a leader to recognize what are my strengths? What are my limitations? How do I view the world? And how is it, how is it different for Jim, Jane, John? And then kind of trying to think of collaboratively, not to just think tactically, yes. but to think you know, about wh- what is it that Roxanne feels is good at, but needs help with is competent at, doesn't need have, doesn't have the skill. How does she need to experience it? And that takes a lot of, like you said, that's um, connection and getting to know people. And sometimes you're going to do it badly. Like I like the oops award. I think that's phenomenal because we always talk about um, what we, you know, what are the wins and how did we do, you know, what did we do well? But I think you're equally as right as saying, what did we not do well? What yes. could we have learned? What variables did we not take in, into consideration? And what things were outside of our control? Yeah. And here's another question to add to that list. Love those questions. Why aren't things worse? So it's, it's, it's a version of the, the what's working around here, which is, but also it's that when we're acknowledging that something is not working and yet it's not as bad as it could be. <laughs> so there's this, there's this beautiful whole conversation that can happen in a failure resilient team or organization that allows you to explore things on a much deeper level. You know, my background is healthcare and we had to legislate quality reviews in order for healthcare teams when there was a critical incident to analyze it so thoroughly and deeply. Why? Because it's a litigious industry. People don't want to get sued. I can't admit I made a mistake because it may be, I may be blamed. Um, we, we don't, people feel like there's so much on the line. I couldn't possibly admit a mistake because then everybody will judge me, will think that I'm a terrible clinician and there goes my career down the toilet. Um, maybe, it, you know, we, we overwhelm our, our busy middle managers in healthcare. Some have up to 250 direct reports. Mm-hmm. So now we may have to surface the fact that we've put completely unreasonable expectations on folks and yet we have no additional money to pay them in our strained healthcare system. So, you know, but we had to legislate, you must do a root cause analysis. If there is a near miss, that's very serious that somebody has had a uh, medication or a surgical or whatever the issue, uh, whatever the type of intervention, but that person had serious consequences as a result of it, or perhaps even lost their lives. Mm-hmm. Ima- like it is, it may be shocking for some Canadians to hear. And I believe me, have, have good faith in your healthcare system. It is a great healthcare system. And um, the reality is nobody wants to admit that they were part of a system that created a tragic circumstance because nobody shows up to do a bad job. And yet sometimes we have to legislate, you must admit failure, you must study failure, because how on earth are we going to prevent it from happening again? For sure. This, you know, you and I probably could spend so much more time, and I love that the term um, failure resilience, and I, yeah. I hope you coin that, and because I love it. And I think- hey. 
Go for it. Use it. Everyone listening, use it. I Honestly, love it. I love it because I think if we can teach that um, in our everyday lives, either at home or at work, that's the gift. Yeah. Well, but, you know, we're, we're experiencing that in our house right now. Um, I, my daughter just graduated grade eight and she came within less than 1% away from honors, the honors role in a very high performing um, caliber of students and initially felt, she felt terrible. And when you're 14 and you're a girl, you know, you go, it's very angst related time in your life. We've had to live this lesson this week is really honoring that she is brilliant and smart and 0.7% or 5% or whatever that tiny fraction, less than 1% does not make you smart or not smart. So that's, that is part, we've had a lot of failure resiliency conversations in our house, not because anyone views her as a failure in this house, except her Mm -hmm. and that she gets a chance to redefine what her year, her grade eight year has been and how she's ended her elementary career. And she's getting to that point now. It's taken a week. She's very proud. She works so hard. She's, you know, she's, she's, and, and I'll admit it's, it was, it's been a bit of a battle for me of, of speaking with the school and them not being willing to consider that less than 1% is close enough that we can't give her at least the, ability to say that she, she graduated with honors, but I have to move on from it. I don't, I don't really care about it as a mom. Like I don't feel that she needs to get that to prove to me. She's an incredibly talented, smart girl. Um, but it matters to her, which was, you know, which was why we kind of took this on even as a conversation with the school. And so she gets to now redefine what does intelligent look like? What does smart, what does working hard look like? What do I need to do in high school? If this now is such a big goal of hers, what does she have to do in high school to be an honor roll kid all the way through? So it w- it's been a struggle for a week related to that while we have colds and while we have like, we're overscheduled and you know, all this, all the things that happened at the end of the year. Um, but it's been a good thing. And this is, this is, I think, the, um, the gift of when we look at failure resiliency versus being failure resistant is that we always have an opportunity to discover, to uncover, to, well, and that's the flip. That is the flip side of failure is that there is another way if we choose to see it, experience it. And I just want to make sure everybody hears me loud and clear when I say, and you don't have to do it immediately. Being failure resilient does not mean you go, oh, thank goodness this failure has happened. I'm so excited. I get a chance to learn. No. If you lose somebody you love, if you lost your job, if you, um, you, you know, you're, if somebody takes, hacks your computer and you lose everything, you don't have to be like, this is amazing. I get to learn something now. No, you're allowed to feel, this is the worst. This is awful. I can't believe this happened. You know, it, it, hap- it, it can, the elevate can happen with time. It's mm-hmm. okay to deflate at first or just mitigate the damage. Right. The deflate can happen. And that in fact is part of being failure resilient as well, is to just be able to go, okay, this really does stink. And, and I'm a, that is okay to feel that way. <laughs> it is okay to say, team, I need space. <laughs> My kid yelled at me before I came to work. I am not in a good mood. I just need five minutes before yeah. our team meeting. Sorry, we're starting late, but I, or you guys go ahead without me. I'm in the bathroom crying for five minutes. So, yeah. <laughs> 
Failure resiliency is however you need it to be to be able to flip it for yourself. Well, Sarah, this is always a pleasure. I know this is the second time you've been on my podcast. What I want um, you to tell everyone is where they can buy the book or what, you know, any, any employers that are looking for um, speaking events, what, whatever you're needing, just let them know where they can uh, get a hold of you so they can uh, spend some time with you if they're needed. Awesome. Well, Roxy, thank you for having me on your podcast. It's, it's an honor and a privilege too. Um, so my website is greatnessmagnified.com. And if anyone would like those tools or to learn more about the book, you can go to greatnessmagnified.com slash the flip side of failing. Um, you can also just Google it. It's available on Kindle, on Kobo. Uh, you can buy it through Amazon. Of course, you can buy it through my website. Buy it through the website. Just tell me if you want me to autograph it. Happy to. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's um, it, uh, this new demo video coming out. So if people want to check that out, uh, we have people dance in the keto. We we, <laughs> we we really put our money where our mouth is when we talk about learning. So and it don't worry everybody. It's not scary. It's it's really really fun. I, and I have smiling audiences in my new demo video that's coming. She, she does. Good. And she dances. Yes, I do dance. I do she dance. She does dance. And, she, and, she's, and she's funny. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so for well, everyone, you know, uh, Sarah, always a pleasure. And for everyone listening, um, I'm going to end it on this note to say failure resistant resilience. Just keep, just keep trying it and figuring out what you did wrong and what you could learn from the experience and how do you elevate from that spot according to uh, her model. Uh, for everyone, um, if you're needing more on me, um, I'm a keynote speaker and a mental health and wellness specialist. You can reach me at roxandurhodge.com. So take care, Sarah. We'll chat soon. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.